0: As we enter John chapter 19, the religious establishment headed up by a set of dueling high priests known as Annas and Caiaphas, they have by this point convicted Jesus in these kangaroo courts, these nighttime trials of Jesus for the crime of blasphemy against God. And as a result of their conviction, their intention is to have Jesus executed. The only problem with this he- heinous plan was that the Jewish right to enact capital punishment had been revoked in 5 A.D., meaning that the Roman governor, a man named Pontius Pilate, was the only one who had the power to put Jesus to death. After a lengthy conversation with Jesus, things recorded in John chapter 18, a moment where Pilate formally interrogates Jesus to see if he was indeed guilty of not just wrongdoing but a crime worthy of death, In John 18, verse 38, Pilate makes a bold conclusion. He makes a declaration. He says that he had found no fault in Jesus at all. See, in Pilate's estimation, after a formal interrogation, Jesus was not just innocent. He wasn't guilty of any crime. Now, understandably, this particular verdict doesn't sit well for a group of religious men that are out for blood. They're outraged. They demand Pilate reconsider. Now, recognizing that this is becoming a political hot potato, an attempt to skirt making a definitive decision, Pilate does something interesting. He chooses to send Jesus to King Herod across town to allow Herod to make a determination, especially because Jesus was from his jurisdiction. Jesus was from Galilee, and King Herod was over that particular area. Now, in Jesus' appearance before Herod, he refuses to answer any of his questions. And it doesn't take long for Herod to grow bored and send Jesus back to Pontius Pilate. Now, if there was a silver lining, at least for Pilate, Herod had reached the same conclusion pertaining to Jesus' innocence. For context, by the time we get to our text, chapter 19, Pilate is really certain of two key details, two key points. One He's confident Jesus is an innocent man. The second thing he's confident of is that he's being set up by the religious establishment. In both Mark 15, verse 10, and Matthew 27, verse 18, we're told that by this point in the scheme, Pilate has come to the realization, quote, that they handed him over because of envy. The religious establishment, they were jealous of Jesus' popularity with the people. And if that weren't enough, in Matthew 27, verse 19, we're given kind of a behind-the-scenes detail that while all of this is happening, likely why Jesus is before King Herod, that Pilate's wife sends him a message warning him, quote, "...have nothing to do with this just man." Claiming, in fact, that she had suffered many things in a dream because of Jesus. There is no question that Pilate finds himself, again, as we get to chapter 19, between the proverbial rock and a hard place. He knows Jesus is innocent. But he's also aware of the political repercussions that were likely to ensue if he decided to toe the line and obey his conscience and rule against Annas and Caiaphas. The last thing that Pontius Pilate needed Was a riot in Jerusalem, especially during the Feast of Passover. Now, hoping for a way out of his predicament, Pilate comes before the people. They're starting to amass outside of his home, a place known as the Praetorium, and he gives them a proposal. In fact, the last few verses of chapter 18, we read that Pilate says to them, You have a custom that I should release someone to you during the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the King of the Jews? Pointing to Jesus. But then to his shock and dismay, we're told that they cried out, not this man, but instead a man known as Barabbas, who John tells us was a robber, but in other places we're told he was a revolutionary. He led a revolt. He committed murder. He was a bad man. Pilate's plan here backfires. And his predicament has just worsened. So that's the context for John chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. We're told, so then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Now, because of this specific political pickle that Pilate finds himself in, he decides to have Jesus scourged. And it's likely he makes this decision for two reasons. First, a Roman scourging was designed to coax a confession out of a prisoner. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, but he's also thinking that if under the scourging, Jesus would fess up to a crime under duress, it would give him an out. The second likely motivation behind the decision to scourge Jesus was an attempt on Pilate's part to appease this bloodthirsty mob. Hopefully, getting him out of making a ruling that defied his conscience. Pilate's hoping that watching the scourging would help him avoid condemning Jesus to death by crucifixion. He's doing everything he can to get out making a decision. Now, before we discuss the actual scourging of Christ, I want you to first just imagine... The current state of Jesus' physical condition before we even get to the scourging itself. I think it's important. Back in the Garden of Gethsemane, just a few hours earlier, knowing what was coming, Jesus is praying, and we're told that he suffered from a phenomenon, a medical phenomenon, known as hemothydrosis. According to Luke 22, verse 44, we read that being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly. So much so that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. Medically, hemothidrosis results when great emotional stress causes the tiny capillaries in the sweat glands to rupture. What this does is it mixes blood with a person's sweat. Thus Luke's account that he was sweating great droplets of blood. Even before the first punch... Before the dominoes fall, Jesus is emotionally taxed. He's drained. And aside from this, during the five trials that Jesus has already experienced this evening, before the scourging, the five trials, the one before Annas, and then before Caiaphas, and then the Sanhedrin, and then Pilate, and then King Herod. Before all of that, the gospel narratives record how Jesus was struck in the face, sucker punched, when he replied to Annas, challenging the legalities of the arguments. Uh, then he's struck in the face when he decides to remain silent before Caiaphas. So if, if he replies, he gets punched. If he doesn't reply, he gets punched. Additionally, we're told by the gospel writers that at one point, Jesus is even blindfolded and beaten. And he's spat upon, taunted to name his accusers. By the time Jesus is sent to be scourged by Pilate at the opening of John 19, keep in mind as you play the scene out. He's already battered, bruised, swollen, bleeding, dehydrated, sleep-deprived. <laughs> He's been up all night. Once Pilate gave the official order, Jesus would be taken from the praetorium to a place known in Hebrew as Gabatha, or as it's translated, the pavement. Gabatha was a public place located likely in the bowels of the fortress of Antonio, situated on the north side of the temple. It was also near the judgment seat. Now, I don't, I don't mean this morning to be overly graphic, but I do think it's important you actually understand what takes place in a Roman scourging, what Jesus' experience actually was. Very beginning of this process, Jesus would have been stripped naked. His hands would have been tied to a post above his head. Then two trained Roman soldiers would proceed to beat or whip Jesus 39 times across the shoulders, the neck, the back, the legs with what was known as a flagrum. A flagrum or more popularly referred to as a cat of nine tails. It was a short whip that consisted of several heavy leather thongs that had weaved into the end small bits of really anything they could find. Bone, rocks, even glass. You see, every strike of a flagrum, all 39, intended to inflict incredible bodily harm. It would be missing the point, honestly, to even describe the scourging as being barbaric. It would be an understatement. Let me read for you one historical eyewitness, his description of a Roman scourging. Quote, At first the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continued, they cut deeper into subcutaneous tissues, first producing an oozing of blood from the capillaries and the veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from the vessels and the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead first produced large, deep bruises which are then broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating would stop. Now, following the scourging, imagine Jesus in such a condition. His hands would be untied, and no doubt his body slumped onto the stone pavement below. Not only is Jesus physically a bloody mess, but you can imagine in such a beating that he's involuntarily wet and defecated himself. John then tells us to add injury to insult. After the scourging, the soldiers, what do they do? They get done beating him. And then they twist a crown of thorns and they place it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and they begin to to hail King of the Jews as they're striking him with their hands. I mean, imagine that. As they've finished the scourging, these Roman soldiers throw a purple robe across his shoulders. It instantly becomes super saturated with blood. Then they press onto his scalp a large crown of thorns. The scalp is is quite vascular, meaning that there's a copious amount of blood that begins pouring down his face and into his eyes, making it difficult to see as they're punching him, beating him. Another place tells us that they give Jesus a stick as a scepter. I mean, the humiliation of playing dress-up after a scourging. But these evil men, they taunt him and they mock him, hailing him a king as they're striking him across the face. And as you play this scene out in your mind, I can see them taking the scepter from his hand, striking him across the head, pushing the crown of thorns even deeper into his scalp. In another place, the Bible says that they plucked the beard from his face. Man, I'm moved to tears when i got to pull a nose hair. Imagine... Having your beard ripped from your face. And describing Jesus' physical appearance by the time he's returned to the praetorium and presented to Pilate. The scriptures tell us that it wasn't that you couldn't recognize that he was Jesus. It's you had a difficult time recognizing him as a man at all. Verse 4. So Pilate then went out again. And he said to the crowd, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. There was no confession. Then Jesus came out. And again, play the scene out. He's just been scourged. He's just been humiliated. John even tells us that he is wearing the crown of thorns and this purple robe. And Pilate says to them, Behold the man. This word behold. It means see, or literally look at him. Look at him. There's some debate in regards to what Pilate's frame of mind is when he's making these statements. But contextually, I I find very little pomp, very little circumstance into his declaration here. Don't forget, the scourging of Jesus was designed to help Pilate avoid sentencing him to a crucifixion. Sure, a confession would have been grand, But the presentation of Jesus in such a state was designed, on Pilate's part, to awaken pity amongst this crowd. Look at him! Behold him! No doubt, Pilate's taken back by what then happens. Verse 6, Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw Jesus, again, Pilate's hoping for pity, They cried out, or they kept crying out. They were screaming out, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate, as you can imagine, kind of astonished by the reaction, says to them, kind of mockingly, you take him and crucify him, which no doubt they couldn't do. And then he reiterates, for I find no fault in him. On at least three occasions, Pilate has ruled that Jesus was innocent. Again, he declares, I find no fault in him. At this point in our story, Pilate's back is against the wall. The religious leaders are trying to force his hand by any means necessary. The statement, you take him, you crucify him, clearly intended to articulate a frustration over the whole situation. Well, verse 7, then the Jews answered Pilate, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, Because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now, up until this point, the religious leaders, while they have presented Jesus to Pilate, have refused to specify as to what Jesus has exactly done that warranted death. Pilate, a third time, declares his innocence. They're sensing a need now to justify themselves. So they tell Pilate that Jesus ought to die because he made himself out to be God. Now what's interesting is that when Pilate heard that, that declaration, that he made himself out to be the Son of God, John observes that he was more afraid. In the original language, it means that when Pilate heard that, he's terrified. He's absolutely terrified. (laughs) Pilate has just scourged a man who claimed to be a king. He had not scourged a man who had claimed to be the son of God. And Pilate is quite superstitious. So he brings Jesus swiftly back into the praetorium. And he asks him, point blank, where are you from? Pilate is begging Jesus to explain himself, to give him a reason to justify letting him go. It's as though Pilate's asking him, who are you really? Now in response to Jesus' deafening silence, verse 10, Pilate says to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you? And power to release you? In light of the fact that Pilate believed, that he held Jesus' destiny in his hands, he's astonished that Jesus is not saying anything. It's kind of as though Pilate's saying, why in the world are you not begging me to let you go? I mean, I know you're innocent. Why aren't you making an argument, giving me a reason? Why are you silent? Now, it's in response to this, though, that verse 11 says that Jesus answered. (laughs) In the moment. He's looking up at Pilate, scourged bloody bruised with a crown of thorns on his head he looks up and he says you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above therefore the one who delivered me to you has greater sin Pilate's already freaked out he's already afraid of jesus In all of his years of making judgments, he's never experienced a situation like this. Keep in mind, Pilate is Roman, which means his religion, if it was religious at all, was based in Roman mythology. And Roman mythology had, as kind of a core principle, similar to Greek mythology, the idea of the sons of God coming down as men. So the idea, I just scourged a god. And then in response to this, you're like, you would have no power unless it came from you. He's freaking out. He's unsettled. Now notice what results from this. Verse 12. So from then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus. He said, I'm done. But the Jews cried out, saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Caesar. It's not written in the English, but in the original language, there's a dun-dun-dun in the text. So when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place called the pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Not only has Pilate been convinced of Jesus' innocence since the initial interrogation, he's actively seeking to release Jesus. From Pilate's point of view, enough is enough. I've had enough of this. It's time to end the charade. I'm going to release him. Even if it's in defiance of an angry mob, I'll deal with it. Now, it's at this point that the Jewish leaders decide it's finally time to play their ultimate trump card. Because Jesus made himself out to be a king, they now argue that if Pilate, if you let him go, are you really Caesar's friend? These men, they're playing dirty. Because they understand that the one thing Pilate had to maintain at all costs was a healthy relationship with Rome. And more specifically, his father-in-law, Tiberius Caesar. Pilate is in a tough spot. Historically, we know, and there's accounts, that Pilate had had a heavy hand. And as a result, several riots had ensued. There was, in this moment, a real tension between Pilate and Rome already. He couldn't afford a problem. No longer is this now a matter of his own conscience. Like The greater calculus is whether or not Pilate is going to be willing to lose everything for a man he just met. Sadly, Pilate is about to make the most devastating decision of his life. John recalls how he sat down in the judgment seat, has Jesus brought before the people for the final time? He's about to issue a definitive ruling. We're told by John, verse 14, that it was the preparation day of the Passover. At about the sixth hour, and Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. At this point, Matthew chapter twenty-seven, verses twenty-three and twenty-four, tell us that Pilate, he says, "Why?" cries out, "Why? What evil has he done?" But they cried out all the more, "Let him be crucified." So then, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail, but rather a tumult was arising, Matthew records that he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, and he said, "I am innocent." Of the blood of this just person, you see to it. And then John writes in verse 16 that Pilate delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him. And two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. In verse 18, John says a whole lot in just three words. They crucified him. Again, I want you to have a complete picture of what's happening. The picture. Pilate makes his ruling. Jesus is to be executed via crucifixion. This takes place a few minutes before 9 a.m. He's taken by the soldiers... And he's got to be prepped for the long walk to Golgotha. First, the purple robe. That is likely by this juncture adhered to the blood and serum that's been oozing from his wounds from the scourging. It's torn from his back. We're pulled off a band-aid too late. That feeling. Jesus experiences excruciating pain. All of his wounds are reopened. Then a heavy, blood-stained, dirty, used, unsanitary wooden beam, a beam used for crucifixions, is tied across Jesus' shoulders. And with the weight of the beam on His back, He's now forced to begin a slow journey, a slow walk down a road known as the Via Dolorosa towards the execution site. You can imagine that the heavy weight of the beam coupled with Jesus' physical condition I mean, this is a difficult walk. He stumbles repeatedly. He falls down. With each tumble, the rough wood gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of his shoulders. Shoulders ravaged from scourging. Physically, Jesus is pushed beyond human limits. He can't make it. In another account, we're told that they have to take a man from the the crowd, a guy by the name of Simon, and have him carry the wooden beam the rest of the way. And yet, even then, An exhausted Jesus still has to force himself to walk the remaining journey to the place of the skull. Around 9 a.m., Jesus arrives at Golgotha. The cross beam is attached to the vertical beam that's already there in its location. Jesus is then pushed onto the ground, thrown backwards. His shoulders are pressed firmly against the wooden beam. His his hands are tied. And then forced outward upon the beam, dislocating his shoulder joints. To get his hand in place. At that point, the legionnaire quickly drives a heavy wrought iron nail through Jesus' right wrist deep into the wood. He screams in pain. They quickly move to the other side. They repeat this with the left with his hands now secured on the crossbeam, Jesus' left foot is pressed back against the right, both feet extended onto a very small platform. And then a solitary nail is driven through the arch of each foot into the vertical beam. Once that's complete, the cross is then hoisted into the air and it's dropped into a hole, placing this incredible jolt of pain throughout his body. Most terribly, the only way that Jesus on the cross can avoid the stretching torment of the nails in his hands is by pushing himself up on the nail in his feet. He's got to push his whole weight on that one nail to get a gulp of air. And each time that happens, excruciating pain happens as the skin is torn from that nail in between the metatorsal bones of, of his feet. A Roman crucifixion was so barbaric, so horrific, there wasn't a word for it. There wasn't a word to describe it. As a matter of fact, it it was banned in Roman law for any Roman citizen to ever be crucified, no matter what the crime. Capital punishment was beheading. The Jews would never have done something like that. They stoned their prisoners to death. There wasn't a word to describe the experience of a cross. In fact... Our English word excruciating is derived from the Latin word they invented to describe this particular experience. The word excruciating, it literally means out of the cross. It's a pain from the cross. Unique. Well, the shortest crucifixion, according to Roman records, lasted 32 hours. With the longest being 13 days. Because of the scourging and Jesus' physical condition here, he will be dead in six hours. Now, next Sunday, and really the weeks to come, I plan to wrap up our discussion concerning Pilate. I want to dig into the motivations of the bloodthirsty mob. I even plan to to dive into the actual location of Golgotha, continue our examination of Jesus' experiences on the cross, seven statements that he declares, At some point, Lord willing, I even plan to talk about the Passover, and how this all ties into it, the exact day Jesus died on the cross. And though there's so much to unpack, this morning, for the sake of time, I just want to return to the picture that John presents for us in verse 18. Look back again at it. He writes that where they crucified him, There were two others with him, on either side, with Jesus in the center. What a scene. Three crosses. Two men with Jesus. You know, the first thing that strikes me is this image of Jesus on a cross between two sinners, between two guilty men. Like, how could a thing happen that that ends up being Jesus' destiny? That that's where his story ends up? What a tragedy. Yes, there is no doubt that the Jewish leaders had instigated Jesus' death. And sure, Pilate played a role. He capitulated. He sanctioned the execution. Beyond that, the legionnaires. Well, they carried out the dastardly deed. And without question, Satan, well, he gloated over the torment of Christ. But there is a central truth to this scene that is essential to your understanding of why Jesus was on the cross between sinners. And it's the fact that it was God the Father who sacrificed the Son. You want to know why Jesus was on a cross between two sinners? It's because God put Him there. God killed Jesus. To, to that point, look no further than probably the, the one verse you know by heart. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that what? He gave <laughs> His only begotten Son. The Lamb of God. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You've got to understand the horrors that Jesus experienced on this particular day which included not just a scourging and not just a crucifixion but also included a humiliation and a betrayal these things encompassed the wrath of God towards sin you see Jesus experienced consequences that were meant for you Like Jesus was on a cross, and and in Good Friday service, we discussed how it was literally Barabbas' cross a guilty man that the innocent man took his place for, a substitution, a sacrifice. Barabbas set free because Jesus was nailed to his tree. But you gotta also understand, and, and thinking through beyond the idea that we're all Barabbas, that the punches that Jesus took that night from the temple guards. They were meant for your face and the lashes he endured from the flagrum for your back. The cross Jesus was laid upon by legionnaires, well, it had your name on it. And the nails that pierced his hands and feet had been sized for yours. And yet Jesus willingly took all of these things upon himself for one reason. He loves you. And he knows everything about you. And he still loves you. How interesting that to the right and to the left of Jesus we find guilty men. Cohorts of a rebellion. Two men convicted of crimes. That they indeed committed with Jesus in the center. What a picture. Two nameless sinners hung to each of Jesus' sides. You know what's interesting about these two men? Is that scripture provides literally zero distinctions between either men. Both began the day in prison. Both declared guilty of the same crime. Both condemned to an identical death. Scripture declared that both of these men were transgressors of the law. There was nothing neither of them could do to save themselves. In fact, each man had his hands and his feet nailed to an identical cross, incapacitated. Each man's fate, both of them, inescapable and unavoidable. On this day, there were two rebels hung an identical distance from Jesus. And in the process of these six hours, each of these two men were given the identical amount of revelation each of them the same distance, to hear Jesus' words from the cross. Each able to watch the way in which Jesus lovingly handled his accusers. Amazingly, each of these two men were able to hear Jesus pray while hanging from a cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Two rebels hung the same distance from a Savior each the same distance from eternal separation, each the chance to be permanently forgiven, to be restored. Each of these men found themselves the same distance from either God's righteous wrath or His amazing grace. Each of these two men could that day experience salvation in life or everlasting condemnation and death. Beyond this, two rebels, each provided with the same opportunity. Both men, (laughs) well, they would die upon the cross in which they hung. But they were both given a final opportunity. One last chance to go to heaven instead of hell. Though they were both unable to do anything To earn God's favor. I mean what could they do? Each of their hands were were in a fixed place. But each man was given an opportunity. To look to Jesus. And to ask him to save them. Each man had a, a choice. To believe. And place their faith in him. Two identical rebels. Sinners hung the same distance from Jesus. Men who could accept or reject him. As their savior. And while Mark tells us that both of these men initially reviled Jesus. According to Luke chapter 23. Something amazing happens at some point during the experience. In fact one difference emerges. Luke records that one of these two criminals begins to verbally blaspheme Jesus. They're on the cross. And he begins to say if you are the Christ save yourself and save us. But the other man, the other guilty man, answered his friend and rebuked him and said, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. We deserve to be here. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then that criminal, that rebel, that sinner, after rebuking his friend, he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, Kyrios, Messiah, Christ, remember me when you come into your kingdom. (laughs) But then Jesus said to him, assuredly, that word assuredly, confidently, take it, believe it, hold it. I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Though virtually everything about these two men, identical. Because of their differing positions concerning Jesus, these men would ultimately awaken to two radically different eternal realities. The, devil, the, the rebel who rejected Jesus, mocked them and blasphemed him would be lost. While the other, who sees his opportunity to place his eternal faith in Jesus as his Lord, well, that man would awaken to be with Jesus in paradise. Like, understand, two rebels on two crosses situated between one Jesus illustrates for us two amazing realities. The first one, and be encouraged by this, Jesus came to save rebels. He was fixed between two sinners, and that was the plan. He came to save that which was lost, to redeem those who were broken, to heal the broken heart. He came for the outcast, the rebel, the outlaw. You know, it's not that Jesus would save one and not the other that blows me away. It's the fact that Jesus was willing to save either one of them at all. For neither of them deserved it. They were guilty. You know This scene for me, it's, it's important. For it illustrates the idea that our eternal salvation, what saves us, has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with what you do. It's not your actions. It's His. You see, your works, friend, matter not in the context of His work on that cross. You're not saved by the sacrifices that you make for God. You're saved by one sacrifice God made for you when He gave His only begotten Son. Please know that your salvation is not based on what you do. Rather, it's based upon what he did on that third cross and whether or not you accept it. That one man, in contrast to his buddy, was saved by his faith in Jesus and his simple petition that Jesus save him as his hands and feet were nailed to his cross, there was nothing the man could do to earn it. Nothing he could do to like have an attaboy. He's nailed to a tree. And yet he's saved because of something that happens in his heart. Something that happens internally. You know, by that man's salvation. And the fact that Jesus affirms it by saying, you'll be with me in paradise. We know with confidence something amazing. That our righteousness... Our rightness before God is not a matter of our performance because we fail. We fail God. We fail Him a lot, but thank goodness it's not based upon our failure, but entirely upon our faith in a Savior. Friend, like these two men, you're guilty. You're guilty. And when it's all said and done, the wages of sin is death. There is a death in your future. And yet Jesus, this is what I want you to know this morning. If he was willing to save that rebel on that cross next to him, he wants to save you. He's willing to bear your sin if you will just make a decision of your will and your heart to believe. To believe in that sacrifice, to place your faith in him. I don't know where any of you come from or your background, but I must say that you are not saved because of your first Holy Communion or your confirmation or your baptism. Things that you do, you're saved by what Jesus has done for you. It's not the things you do for God or the things you sacrifice for God that matters. As illustrated by these two rebels crucified to his right and his left, the only thing that matters in this life is one decision you make concerning Jesus. Will you accept him as your Lord or by default reject him and mock him? And when, it's an all, when it's all said and done, this picture, three crosses, it reminds you of two options. As these men illustrate, you can stand in the crosshairs of the wrath of a righteous God on your own. Or you can look to his cross in the middle and accept the grace of a righteous Savior who loves you and gave himself for you. You know, what, what I love about the text is that this man, he asked Jesus what? He says, Jesus, will you remember me in your kingdom? Hey, when we get there on the other side, will you remember me? But but look at what Jesus says. Jesus says something amazing. He says, man, I'm not even going to, it's not even, I don't even have to remember you. It's not about me remembering, you're going to be with me. Will you just remember me? Oh, man, you're going to be with me. We're going to be there together. For that man, he began a relationship on a cross. But that relationship continues today. In John 3, verse 36, we're reminded of this important reality, that whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. A life that begins now and lasts for eternity. That's what eternal life means. But whoever rejects Jesus will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Let me close with a story told by Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher, of a man who dreamed that he stood outside the gate of heaven. And while there, he heard sweet music from a band of godly people who were on their way to glory. They entered the heavenly gates, and there was great rejoicing and shouting. So the man asked, Who are these? And he was told that they were a band of prophets. Well, the man sighed. And he said, alas, I am not one of those. So he waited a little while longer. And another band of bright ones drew near the gate of heaven with hallelujahs. And when there he inquired, who are these? And whence came they? And the answer? These are the glorious company of the apostles. And again, the man sighed. And he said, I cannot enter with them. Then came another body of men who were white-robed and bearing palms in their hands, who marched amid great acclamation into the golden city. These, he learned, were the noble army of martyrs. And again the man wept and said, I cannot enter with these. In the end he heard the voices of much people and saw a great multitude advancing, among whom he perceived to be Rahab the harlot and Mary Magdalene. There was Saul of Tarsus and Nicodemus there, the thief, who died at the right hand of Jesus. These all entered in. And the man asked, who are these? And the answer, this is the host of sinners saved by grace. Then he was exceedingly glad and declared, I can. I can go with these. Yet he thought there would be no shouting at the approach of this company That they would enter heaven without song, instead of which there seemed to rise a seven gold hallelujah of praise unto the Lord of love. For there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over even one sinner that repents. And so, Father, Lord, we just...